There's a level of poverty that could pull us out of our values. There's a level of wealth that can. And so trying to find that living a life where my money and my stuff serves me and serves other people instead of being a servant to it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It's a great day to be alive. You knew that too. I have an incredible interview to share with you today with a gentleman named Andy Stanley. He is a pastor of a network of churches here in Georgia in the Southeast and is a brilliant man with a very unique perspective on the lessons that the Bible can teach us about money, wealth, charity, and giving. I beseech thee to stick around to hear the conversation that I very much enjoyed. Before we get to Andy, let's discuss what's happening in the world of crazy money. Man, how cool was it to talk to LL Cool J last week? Like, super cool, right? I got to tell you, I was a little nervous. You don't talk to A-listers every week, but man, he delivered. And I just think he's the coolest guy. And after I did that interview, I was like, I need to work harder. I need to dream harder. I need to get up earlier and bring it every single day. Don't worry about being famous. Be about being the best you can be. Think about doing each day as well as you can. That's what LL Cool J would want from you. I also want to welcome, got a lot of new people to the Facebook Crazy Money Listeners Group because I pulled a little trick on you, made you go look to see who our mystery 100th guest was. It was LL Cool J. New people include Christopher Wang, Nashville's Kemp Maxwell, Dunwoody's Jason Point said, Boston's Andrew Hirsch. <laughs> What's up, Hirsch? Sammy Swisher from Los Angeles, Harrison Pier, Matt Ruby, Rob Penwell, Trent Schofield, the first person with whom I went to Graceland back in 1987 or 88. Druella Schultz, hello, Druella. Judy Moore, Mike Randall, ABC Television's Mary Sheehan, and Kevin Leduc, which is French for the duck, Maura McVan Coley, and Marie Lim. Marie, I think I mentioned you last week. Hey, you get a twofer. Welcome again, Marie. Darn happy to have you. Y'all check out the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. Join up and I'll share intimate pictures. Not that way. I'll share inside pictures with you from life in the Crazy Money Studios. By studio, I mean the uh, guest room over my garage. Let's talk about Andy Stanley. Andy is a legend in Georgia and I would say around the Southeast. He runs a network of churches that is growing and growing. And we talk about why it's growing and the demand that the services of his church, the ministerial services of his church, not the actual services, how they create value for the members, the congregants, the fine people that join him on a weekly basis. I know of Andy by reputation, but I know his son fairly well, gotten to be pretty good buddies with Andrew Stanley, who is a very talented comedian here in Atlanta. He's a young guy, but he's already making a name for himself. He made it into the Montreal Comedy Festival, which is a big deal. Stick around to the end of the show. I'm going to play a little bit of Andrew's comedy, specifically his piece about being the son and grandson of a pastor. He's a very talented, got a crazy dry sense of humor. I know you'll like it. Anyway, I mentioned Andrew because I wanted to talk to Andy and Andrew was kind enough to risk his reputation in his home by introducing me to his dad. Can you imagine if you've got a real successful dad, well-known dad, and you introduce some smart aleck podcaster to him and it doesn't go well at Christmases and Thanksgivings and Sunday dinners for the rest of time, your dad gets to be like, oh, how's that podcasting jerk friend of yours? I think you'll find that this conversation was actually really good. I know I enjoyed it. It was a sincere exploration 
of the Bible, the New Testament, the gospel, most specifically, what Jesus had to teach us about money. Now, before we dive into it, I feel like I owe you an explanation of where I'm coming from, from a faith or lack thereof perspective. I was raised Catholic, went to church until about four or five years ago, and honestly just had an experience where I sat down and started to get real honest with myself about what I believed. And where I came out on that was that I no longer believe in the divinity of Jesus. I believe that he existed. I believe that he was a wildly important person, but I don't believe in his divinity. When it comes to the existence of God, I'm agnostic. I don't know. As Jim Jeffries would call me, a wishy-washy out of respect for Andy Stanley, I will leave out the noun that he used after wishy-washy. So I don't share Andy's faith. I'm not making a point of that to criticize the faith. I'm making it a point so that you understand where I'm coming from. So while I don't embrace the full side of Christianity, I absolutely believe more than ever, in fact, in Christian values. And when it comes to charity, forgiveness, and love, there is no amount of those things that is too much for the world. Andy and I talk about filling our cups and emptying our cups and having as much charity, love, and forgiveness flow through us is our opportunity to be the most complete human beings that we can be. We should all be lifting one another up, relieving each other's pain, creating opportunity for those in need. That, to me, is what Christianity is. You don't do those things to earn a ticket to heaven. We do them because that's our opportunity as human beings to make our life count. And the only way you can really make it count is by using your talents, by using your presence, by using your love to the benefit of the planet and all its inhabitants, including trees, dogs, and especially human beings. So that's where I'm coming from. And I have a sincere interest in the same way I invited Rabbi Daniel Lapin on to talk about what we could learn from the Torah and from the Jewish faith. In the same way I invited Dominic Holder on, the Buddhist professor from London Business School, and talk to him about Buddhism and money and meaning and mindfulness and how all those things work together. In the same way, I want to talk about stoicism. I am interested in sorting through the greatest wisdom of humankind and analyzing it and understanding how that can help all of us live the best life we can vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis money. And that's why I was so eager and appreciative to speak with Andy Stanley. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Communicator, author, and pastor Andy Stanley founded Atlanta-based North Point Ministries in 1995. Today, NPM, as they call it, consists of seven churches in the Atlanta area and a network of nearly 100 churches around the globe. Weekly, they serve 185,000 people. A survey of U.S. pastors and Outreach Magazine identified Andy as one of the 10 most influential living pastors in America. He holds an undergraduate degree in journalism from Georgia State University and a master's degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. He's the author of more than 20 books, including Irresistible, The New Rules for Love, Sex, and Dating, How to Be Rich, Deep and Wide, Enemies of the Heart, and many more. His success reaches well beyond the Atlanta area. Over 10.5 million of his messages, leadership videos, YouTube videos, and podcasts are accessed each month. He's the host of the TV show Your Move with Andy Stanley, which airs in major markets after Saturday Night Live. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley, welcome to Crazy Money. Thank you, Paul. I've been looking forward to it. And uh, this is a little bit different audience for me to talk about money with. So honestly, I've been looking forward to it. Speaking of different audiences, you know, you're well known in Atlanta and in the Southeast. But if I met you on a plane and wasn't familiar with your work, how would you describe it to me? I'm a pastor of a local church that got really big a few years ago. And <laughs> so we've got churches all over the city and Georgia and about 100, I don't know, 90 or something churches around the country. 
So I love leadership and organizational leadership, and I'm a preacher's kid, so this is the industry, if I can speak of it that way, that I grew up in. So mainly, I pastor a local church, and then I get to do some of this extra stuff for fun. So You've written a bunch of books, and you produce a TV show, and, and among the topics you talk about are money and personal finance. In what way is it the role of a pastor to provide his congregation with resources about how to do money better? Well, <laughs> for most folks, maybe a lot of your listeners, the minute you bring up pastor, especially large church pastor, mega church pastor and money, you know, all of their red flags go up because we don't have <laughs> the best reputation. And I'd be happy to explore some of that just for fun. But as a pastor, you know, here's what everybody in your audience knows. We pretty much think about sex and money. Was it like 80% of the time for men or 90? I don't know. It's like it just ping pong. It's just those two things. And then some people play golf and other people, I don't know what they do. So, right. So it's not an ancillary kind of sidebar topic. It is central. And for anybody listening, for all of us in those seasons, and maybe you're in a season like this right now, where you feel financial pressure, there is no other pressure like financial pressure, except maybe health. And, you know, depending on your, you know, your audience's age or people who are listening, if you haven't had a genuine health scare, probably your financial pressure is the biggest pressure you've ever felt when the bottom drops out. And of course, we're in the tail end, hopefully, of a season where a lot of people have faced financial pressure like they've never faced it before. So it's all consuming. It wrecks marriages. It wrecks relationships. It's huge. So as a pastor who cares about people, it would be impossible to have effective or even compassionate ministry if I didn't talk about money. So I enjoy talking about money and preaching about money. I don't ask for it. I don't teach tithing. I don't believe if you give God a dollar, he'll give you 10. I think that's magic. That's not. Oh man, there goes my strategy. Well, good luck. You know what I tell the folks in our church? I say, hey, come on. You live in the United States of America. You already have your 10. So, you know, come on, let's learn how to be generous and budget better and be good stewards. So I love to talk about money. But it's not because, you know, it's not the, t- the, t- the things that come to people's mind when they think about preachers and money. The bottom line is I can't help people live well if I don't talk about personal finance, I guess. Mm. Well, what kind of relationship do you want your congregants to have with money? And do you call them your congregants? What is the appropriate term for a member of uh, one I, of your churches? That's that's fine. We can call it that. I struggle with some of those terms. And one reason is we don't have membership at our church. People say, what about your members? I'm like, We don't have members, but that's another topic for another day. This is a great question because this is something that Jesus addressed directly. And he said, nobody can have two masters. Now, we hate that word. We don't even have master bedrooms anymore. I get that. But this is Jesus' terminology. And of course, when he lived, there were actual slaves. And, you know, so he says, nobody can have two masters. Um, You're going to love one or hate the other. So, in answer to your question, I want the folks in our church to master their money rather than be mastered by their money. And that has to do with debt. That has to do with how they spend, how they plan, how they live, how they prepare for the future. So money is the only area in our lives where it should not be emotional because we know exactly how many there are and we should know exactly where they're going because our money goes exactly where we tell it to go. My kids don't. My wife doesn't, the people who work for me don't, but my money goes exactly where I I send it. But for so many people, money becomes so emotional, it becomes a master rather than a tool. So I say to folks all the time, if you're a Christian, then I know everybody in your audience is religious, but 
for Christians, we already have a master. Jesus is our master. And it's so interesting because Jesus doesn't say you can't have two masters who will either serve God or serve the devil. He's so insightful. He says, no, you're going to serve God or you're going to serve your stuff. So my message is <laughs> I want you to master your stuff rather than be mastered by it. So. so that the way we use our money, the way we earn our money is a reflection of our values and mm -hmm. not the purpose of our values. Making as much money as we can or having as much stuff as we possibly can doesn't become our value. Yeah. And again, there are different personalities. There are people who are content to just have a little bit of margin. There are people who are driven to make as much as possible. And we can talk about that in a minute because a lot of times you know, the super aggressive people who make a lot of money are vilified, which is crazy in my estimation, because I think people who have the ability to make a lot of money, that's a gift that God has given them. And they should make as much money as they possibly can. Now, what they do with it is another discussion, but there is no virtue in seeing an opportunity to make more money and not pursuing that opportunity as long as it's legal and within the guardrails of time frame and time management and all that. Because I love this season of my life. We're empty nesters. We've got two married kids. Andrew, who's your friend, is out doing his own thing. So Sandra and I have more <laughs> financial margin than we've ever had before. And to be able to give large sums of money away or when somebody says they have a need, I'm like, okay, you don't need to do a fundraiser. We just take care of that. There is so much joy in that. That's because of basically the way I was raised and hopefully allowing the values of the New Testament to shape how I view money. So anyway, that's, that's a long answer to your question. Well, you talk about the New Testament, how it shapes money. You know, I had a rabbi on here a few months ago, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, who's a very interesting, thoughtful guy. And he says that money is holy because the only way you can get it is by pleasing another child of God. Now that is in the long run, not in the short run. You can always steal or right. fool somebody. But right. in the long run, if you want to create riches, you have to provide value to another person. That's right. How do you interpret the quote from the Gospel of Matthew where it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for a rich yeah. person to enter the kingdom of God? Yeah. So the specific answer is that Jesus is talking about people who are depending on their wealth. In other words, they are slaves to their money. They're slaves to their wealth. And it's not because they didn't have a lot. He's talking specifically about rich people. And in the context of one of those gospels, he's talking about rich religious people like me. He's talking about the people who are leveraging their power over people and you know creating more and more income in a way that was displeasing to him. So the person, and we've all seen this, we've probably all had a friend or maybe somebody listening, this is their story. They grew up with a little bit. They had a lot of faith. They're super involved in their church or their synagogue or their temple or whatever. And then they started... They made more money, then they had more opportunities because the trap of money is the opportunities and suddenly the weekends are busier and suddenly they look back and they've just disconnected from their faith. They don't know why. It wasn't an intellectual thing. It's not like I read a Sam Harris book or Richard Dawkins book. I lost my faith. <laughs> they just woke up one day and it's not as important. It's not front and center. They've come up with a way to sort of excuse all of that. And so it's a powerful detriment, it can be a detriment to faith, and it causes people to drift off center with their values. And Paul, I would imagine you've known people or have friends who, when they came into money or they worked really hard and suddenly their net worth went up and they wrecked relationships, they ran off with somebody else. And again, if, if they'd stayed poor, they would have probably stayed married. So Jesus says, you know what, this is a very difficult test to pass. Good luck and be careful.
You write in one of your books, and this week's Your Move is about the illusion of autonomy that we develop when we become successful, right? You say in the book that crossing paths with wealth will draw you in the direction of arrogance and the illusion of self-sufficiency. How does that lead Mm -hmm. me to the wrong decisions in life? It's the illusion of autonomy. As an American, as an American male, I'll just narrow the slice. I mean, the American dream is autonomy, to be able to wake up in the morning, do what I want to do, when I want to do it, where I want to do it with who I want to do it with and have the money to pay for it and have the money to get me out of trouble in case I get myself in trouble. That's the American dream in a way. I mean, most people won't admit that, but we watch people with vast amounts of wealth and there's something in us, especially as guys, it's like, mm, I wish I could be that guy. <laughs> so the pursuit of autonomy is natural, but autonomy is a myth. And again, if there aren't guardrails, if there, as you mentioned earlier, if there aren't values that are rock solid and central and irreducible in terms of, hey, these are the things I'm just not going to drift from, then money, just like extreme poverty, that's the other side of this, is a detriment to living a valueful life. There is a proverb, uh, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 30. I quote it all the time. I don't know the reference. It's a prayer. And it says, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much Mm. and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So there's a level of poverty that could pull us out of our values. There's a level of wealth that can. And so trying to find that, not the happy medium between how much is too much, we can talk about that, but just living a life where my money and my stuff serves me and serves other people instead of being a servant to it. You write in one of your books that God views money as a tool we could use to make our lives more meaningful. In what ways can I use money as a ladder to become a better person? Well, as a Christian, I'm to view my wealth, my money, and regardless of how much it is, as a stewardship. In other words, I don't own it. If I think I own it, In a matter of time, it will own me. It is just the nature of stuff. So to live open-handed and say, okay, ultimately, I've worked hard. I've been disciplined. I finished college. I went to graduate school. You know, I'm a responsible citizen. But ultimately, the wealth of the money that comes into my hand is not mine. I'm a manager. So here's the thing. When you think about the person, if there's a person that manages your money or the person that oversees your mutual funds or whatever it might be, they're managing your money. They don't feel guilty. They feel responsible. So if I'm an owner, then I feel guilty. Oh, I don't I have more than other people. But if I'm a manager, I never feel guilty. I feel responsible because managers feel responsible, which means I wake up every day and I say, God, all my talent, all my success, all my whatever I have, my wealth, it's ultimately yours. I want to manage it in a way that honors you. And the way that happens is I think others first and me second. Maybe get to that in a minute because I have a little template that I teach all the time in our church that I've lived with for years that kind of keeps all that straight. So again, I'm looking for opportunities. There's a, Jesus tells this amazing parable about this rich guy. He's already rich and he has an abundant harvest. So he gets even richer. And his first question is, where am I going to put all this stuff? So he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear down my current barns and build bigger barns so I can store all this grain. And then so he tears down his barns, builds bigger barns, gets bigger house, you know, bigger car. And then in this parable, which a parable is just a made up story that Jesus made up to make a point. In the parable, that night after he gets his bigger barns built and he's got all this extra grain and he says to himself, I can live forever and you know use all this stuff. 
God comes to him at night and says, oh, yeah, by the way, you're going to die tonight. <laughs> and, then the que- and then the question is this, and this is such a great question. And he says, and then who is going to spend all that money or who's going to use all that wealth? And the answer is somebody else is, but not because he was generous, but because he's dead. So the challenge. <laughs> what a buzzkill. I know it's a great, <laughs> Jesus was the greatest storyteller. You know, those are my words, but that's the point of the parable. You're not going to give this stuff away. It's going to be taken from you. So to wake up every day and to look for opportunities to do for others, um, what someone has done for me in the past or what I would hope somebody would do if I were in these difficult circumstances, keeping that on the front end, you know, that's so important when it comes to keeping our wealth, our money, our income, regardless of how much money we make or don't make in perspective. It's got to be an other's first thing, or we will just build bigger barns and we'll hoard it. That parable reminds me of the bumper sticker I've seen too many times that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. And every time I see it, I'm like, no, he's just dead. He doesn't get to play with his toys no more. (laughs) No. And this is such an important point, I think. Most of the folks listening to your podcast, and there will be pushback on this, but most of the people listening to your podcast, maybe all, Odds are we are going to run out of time before we run out of money. We just are. Obviously, there are exceptions, but most of us are going to run out of time before we run out of money. So consequently, we should understand that our time is our greatest asset, not our stuff. And our stuff needs to be a tool that we use the right way while we still have time because we're going to die like the guy in the parable and somebody else is going to get all this stuff. Tell me a little bit more about that paradigm that you use to walk people through this. Yeah. So the way I teach this is because for me, this answers so many questions about money. It's a priority. So the way I say it is this give, save, live, give, save, live in that order. Whenever you get any money, paycheck, bonus, end of the year, tax refund, whatever, give first, save second, and then live on the rest. You give first, first. Because most people, that's last. Most people, they flip it around. I'm going to live first. If there's any leftover, I'll try to save some. And you know, the Girl Scouts came by and I bought some cookies I'm going to give. Good on you. You flip it around. I'm going to give first. That is, I'm going to make sure I am an others-centered person. Save second. That's for my future so I don't have to depend on other people. And then whatever's left, live on the rest. So give, save, live. When our kids were growing up, we put three jars in all their bedrooms on their dressers, big jars with those three words, give, save, live. And we gave them allowance. Whenever they would get money, we would split it up in allotments, put 10% in the give jar, you put 10% in the save jar, and then you can spend the rest of this any way you want to. to Just get it in their minds. It's give, save, live. And I'm just telling you, when people just decide that's how I'm going to do it, and here's the thing, I'm convinced that giving first is a keystone habit when it comes to personal finances. That when a person decides, I'm going to pick a percentage and I'm going to give that percentage first, that is a keystone habit. And a keystone habit is a habit that trickles down into all the other areas of life. And this trickles down into all the other areas of our finances because I'm thinking of others first. I'm thinking in terms of percentages, which is the way to think about money, not how much, but percentages. And I'm just going to be more responsible with the rest because I'm not assuming it's all for me. Everybody listening today, is living on a percentage of their income. They have never chosen what percentage to live on, which is so foolish because if you don't choose the percentage, guess what? Somebody else chooses it for you. So if you are living on a percentage, you should know it. So when I used to do a lot of premarital counseling with couples before they got married, I would always say to them, look, 
the most important financial decision you're going to make is not a budget. You should decide right now why you're making less money probably than you'll ever make for the rest of your life. You live in the United States, you're smart people, your income is going to go up over time. I challenge you to pick a percentage and pick a low percentage and decide this is the percentage we're going to live on. This is the percentage we're going to give because the gap between what you make and what you spend, that's where you find peace. The margin is where you find peace. No margin, no peace. And here's the thing, and people don't believe this. It doesn't matter how much money you make. If you don't have any margin, you don't have any peace. 100% true. 100% true. And the myth that if you do make a lot of money, you won't stress about money. But what happens is your appetites grow, your spending grows, and your toys get bigger. (laughs) Yes. And you have to insure more stuff. And there's more stuff to break. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah. Hey, everybody, it's Paul. We'll be back with Andy Stanley in just a minute. I want to take one moment to remind you that after the interview and after my takeaways, which I know you all love, I'm going to play a few minutes of comedy from Andy's son, Andrew Stanley, and I know you'll enjoy his humor. If you have a second, folks, please subscribe and or follow Crazy Money in the app that you're listening to this show on right now. Also, it'd be really great if you had a minute to take a second to rate and review the show. Those reviews tell other people who are new and considering which of the gazillion podcasts on Apple Podcasts and the other apps they might enjoy. Your testimony to the quality of this program helps those people come find us. We build this. We make it stronger. I get better guests. You get more value. You know the drill. Anyway, stick around for Andrew Stanley after the interview. Now back to Andy Stanley. You say that people who are good at being rich are the ones who are willing to admit that they are, in fact, rich. Does that attitude, that awareness, does that lead me to be more confident in living with those keystone habits as you just described them? If I believe I'm rich, if I have an abundance mindset, I'm okay giving first because I know there will be plenty there afterwards. Giving first automatically forces you to reduce your lifestyle. If you give like a rich person, or excuse me, if you give like a generous person. So let me talk about this a minute. And if I don't answer the question you just asked, drive me back. Generosity is not about impulse giving. Every American is an impulse giver. Poor people, middle class, upper middle class, everybody's an impulse giver. They see sad pictures and that's good. We should all be impulse givers at the right time, but that is not generosity. Generosity is choosing a percentage that I am committed to giving before the money comes in. In other words, this first 10 or 12 or 15%, it's not even mine. And I'm going to pick some organizations that I'm passionate about. That's what I tell people all the time. Pick organizations, not individuals, pick organizations that are doing great things in the world that you're passionate about. And don't give a little bit to a lot of people. Pick a percentage and focus your giving on things you're passionate about and give first. Generous people are the people who've picked the percentage and give systematically. I talk to lots of pastors and I tell pastors all the time, look, rich people are not generous people. Generous people are generous people. And the amount of money a person makes has nothing to do with their generosity. Again, it's percentages. Somebody gives $10,000. I don't know if that's a lot. It'd be a lot for a lot of people. But for some people, it's like, that's a joke. Wait, you have a yacht, you have water, and you gave $10,000. That's here. I'm going to give it back. You, 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 not, you know, I mean, really, there have been times when you know, I have to just kind of bite my tongue. Do you give a lot of donations it's back? Like, no, I've never, no, I've never, I've thought about it, you know, because here's the thing people who have vast wealth and they'll come in and say, Andy, you know, we just wanted to give this and they want me to just fall over myself and write them a thank you note. And I'm like, I gave more than that. 
And I, I know what no, – anyway, sorry. So anyway, so generous people are the people who pick a percentage and decide up front this money is going to things I believe in. So that's how you be rich, and that's how you be generous. And as our income goes up and down, of course, the numbers go up and down, but the percentages are locked in. Right. So that you are still giving till it, it's meaningful, regardless yeah. of how much money you're making. Well, think about it. If you pick a percentage, you have already, and this is so important. If you pick a percentage, you have reduced your lifestyle. If you pick a percentage and that goes out first, you have adjusted your lifestyle for the sake of generosity. That is why it's a keystone habit. You wrote something that's, I think, worth everyone's time to meditate on. And your success. <laughs> <laughs> so you wrote that your success with regard to wealth is determined by your objective with regard to wealth. Tell me what that spectrum of objectives might look like. It really kind of goes back to some of the things we've been talking about. I wrote this book. We talked about it earlier in you know, How to Be Rich. I wanted to title the book, Why Am I So Damn Rich? And everybody looked at me and said, you can't title a book that for lots of reasons. But the point was, I want people, instead of saying, how can I get more and why don't I have as much as so-and-so to pause, look around the world. I mean, if you make $46,000 a year, you're in the top half a percent of the income earners in the world. I mean, most people in America should walk out their front door of their apartments every morning and go, praise God, happy. I am rich. But, you know, we don't, we want to feel rich. So in terms of objectives, it's deciding at whatever income level a person's at, why have I been gifted with or why do I have the opportunity to manage the money I have? And if it's just all about me, here's the thing. If you live for yourself, you're only going to have yourself to show for yourself, period. And you won't even like yourself. You just won't. Yeah, I don't care how much money you make. Live for yourself. You'll only have yourself to show for yourself. And ultimately, you won't like yourself. But if you live for others, especially through generosity, there's so much joy there. And again, that connects with values and ultimate objectives. And generosity, you say, is the number one effective proof against arrogance because yes. it forces me to think about the plight of other people on this planet as right. opposed to just being like, what can I do to celebrate who I am today? Yeah, and when I teach this, I say, everybody should be a 3P giver, be a percentage giver, a priority giver, and a progressive giver. Percentage is, and I don't care what the percentage is, 2%, 5%, 10%. Pick a percentage. Okay, that's number one. Number two, priority giver. I'm going to give this first. I'm not going to wait and see if I have it left over. It's percentage, priority, and progressive. I say to folks all the time, I dare you, after you pick a percent a year from now, raise it by 1%. You will never miss that money. In fact, we never miss money we give away. We only miss money. We waste, misinvest, or you know, lose. But you never miss money you give away. So priority giver, progressive giver, percentage giver, those are the truly generous people because they're thinking about how this benefits others and they've made it a priority. Let's talk about the seven deadly sins here for a second. Just to remind ourselves what they are. We all have our favorites. They are pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. So none of these is specifically about money except greed, right? But money is sort of the root or a comorbidity of each of these. Why are they so intertwined? Well, so many of these are impossible to see in the mirror. We can see all of those in other people, right? I mean, we, we <laughs> of course, immediately. Yeah. I mean, I know. And particularly, there's two that you almost can't see in the mirror, and it's not necessarily one of the deadly sins, but you can't see jealousy in the mirror, and you can't see greed in the mirror. So- what is greed? Okay, greed 
is being overcome with what I call the consumption assumption. And the consumption assumption is this, if it comes into my hands, it's for my consumption. Well, that is the definition of greed. Greed is, if it comes to me, it's for me. So you can be poor and be greedy, or you can be wealthy and be greedy. And that's a self-oriented instinct. Yeah, comes back to that. And so back to the seven deadly sins, the seven deadly sins are all about consumption. They're all about me. They're all about me first. Again, live for yourself. You'll only have yourself to show for yourself. You won't like yourself. Live for other people. Or put it this way. Everybody listening, if I said, hey, do you want to live a meaningful life? Yes. Do you want to live a purposeful life? Yes. So here's the definition of meaning. Something has meaning when it becomes a means to an end that's not itself. That's what meaning means. To have meaning means you are a means to an end. So when I am willing financially or with my talent or my time to become a means to an end, that's not me. I'm going to help somebody else do something. I'm going to loan my strength to somebody else. When we become a means to an end, we have meaning. So the problem with selfishness is you can't live a meaningful life and be self-consumed because you're not making yourself a means to an end that's not you. Again, this is the call of Jesus. This is what makes the New Testament writers so powerful. They're saying, hey, you can live a meaningful life, but there's a sacrifice. You have to be willing to be a means to an end. At the same time, we all admire the most. That's exactly what they did, right? They laid down their lives for the sake of a cause or for a group of people. They became a means to an end that wasn't themselves. So we know that's what results in a meaningful life. And oftentimes, it begins with something as simple as becoming generous. We talked about viewing the world through the lens of ourselves, really, as being one of the one of the things that leads us astray, especially when it comes to money and all these other deadly sins. And in addition to appetites, comparison is one of the worst human tendencies to lead us away from true happiness, right? No matter how much yeah. money you make, right? Because if you make a lot of money, you move to a nicer neighborhood, your neighbor's got a bigger house than your last neighbor. So suppose that I'm actually even aware of the fact that I'm making myself miserable by comparing myself to my neighbor. How would you counsel me? My little phrase for that is there's no win in comparison. There's just not. There is no win in comparison. Every once in a while, we can be inspired by what somebody else has accomplished. But you're exactly right. And the thing that fuels comparison is awareness. You use that word. So I go to my neighbor's house. It's like suddenly I'm aware of what I don't have, right? I walk into a showroom, which I don't ever do because I just, <laughs> I have, because I know it's just a discontentment factory, right? So this is so important. Generous people, and this is part of generosity, is to make ourselves aware of the needs in the world. If we aren't aware, and, and again, because of the way neighborhoods are in travel, we li all live in little bubbles. Uh, we can avoid the parts of town we don't like. We can avoid the people we don't like. And before long, we think everybody just lives like us, and we're aware of what we don't have. We're not aware of anybody, you know, people around us. I'll tell you a quick story, and you interrupt if this is off kilter. Years ago, I was invited. I actually got to participate in both of President Obama's inaugural events. The first one, Sandra and I were going, and I had to buy a suit because I didn't have a suit. Sandra had to buy a dress. She didn't own a dress, okay? So we just were so casual. So I went to work that day. And so I knew she was going to go dress hunting. So about halfway through the day or after lunch, I called her. I said, hey, how's it going? Because she's like, I got to find a dress. We're going to the president's inauguration. It's a big deal, right? And she started laughing. She said, well, I'm at, and I won't tell you the name of the store, but just think of the most expensive department store 
you know, in America. Okay. And there's one in Atlanta. She said, I'm in the dressing room at such and such. And I found the most beautiful dress and she describes it. And she said, and it costs $3,000. Okay. <laughs> Is that all? So I paused and then I heard her laughing and snickering. And here's the thing. I could have, I wouldn't have enjoyed it, but if she had said to me, Andy, I've looked all day. This is, you know, it's, I'm like, oh, I didn't even know dresses. Call. I didn't even know there was such a thing. We don't live in that world. I heard her laughing. Here's what she said. She said, if I can get through, this is always an emotional story for me. She said, when I saw the price tag, all, all I could think of was those beautiful faces in Rwanda at Connections Homes. Think of what we could do with $3,000. That's the power of awareness. There's no way in the world I'm going to spend 3000 Now, I'm not saying people shouldn't spend $3,000. i am not judging anybody. Do what you want to do. But again, when we are aware, this is why picking some organizations that are doing great things in the world and being informed about what they're doing, that awareness curbs our appetite for just frivolous spending. And she went and found a dress, I'll never forget this, for $250 and a pair of shoes for $90. And here's why I remember that. Well, because of the comparison. Okay, can I finish this story? So we go to the inauguration. I'm going to try not to name any names. This is like the who's who. We're in the National Cathedral. I'm up front. I get to read this thing. There's President Obama and Clinton and Mrs. Clinton. And I mean, it's the, you know, you can imagine. Everybody's leaving. And a very, very famous politician that everyone would know is walking out and he stops and he looks over and he sees Sandra because she looked beautiful in her $250 dress and reaches across my assistant and her friend and another person I didn't know and shakes Sandra's hand and then leaves. And we have kidded her about that ever since. She's the only person whose hand he shook. It was Bill Clinton. It had to be Bill Clinton. Two, had to be I'm Clinton. Not say, in her, two, <laughs> her $250 dress. But the point of it is simply this. You know, awareness of what I don't have is a draw. Awareness of what I could do with this money is just as important. So where we have to be intentional is with our awareness because awareness drives discontent, right? Awareness is what drives my discontentment. That's actually a really interesting point because my next question was that in 1 Timothy, St. Paul writes, the love of money is the root of all evil, but it is often misquoted as money is the root of all evil. Is that the nuance there? Yeah, right. Because again, as long as money is my servant and not my master, I mean, it's wonderful to be able to adjust our lifestyle so that we have margin to do things for other people. So it really is the love of money. And this goes back to when Jesus said, hey, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because if it's what I love the most, which means if it's what I look to for my self-esteem and my security, then ultimately I'm going to end up serving money rather than allowing my money to serve me and to serve the people around me. You grew up the son of a pastor, a very prominent pastor here in the Southeast. What were the pros and cons of the profession from the perspective of a preacher's kid? I think preacher's kids who end up in ministry generally do a great job because we've seen church world from the inside out. I love to hire preacher's kids, pastor's kids, because they get it. If a pastor's child, a pastor's kid, a son or daughter wants to be in ministry, their parents did an extraordinary job. They saw the real deal. They saw authentic Christianity. They weren't pushed away from faith because of hypocrisy or what was going on at home behind the scenes. 
And so I think us preachers kids, we see it differently. I think it's an advantage. I think anybody who grows up and follows in a mom and her dad's footsteps in the same industry, there's always an advantage because they just have insider information and oftentimes intuition. So it has served me incredibly well. My dad's 88. He just retired from the church last year after his 88th birthday. So I kept telling him, dad, you got to retire because I can't retire before you do, okay? <laughs> You've only got a couple <laughs> more decades. He was just going to keep going. So, so we have a great relationship, but it was an advantage growing up as a preacher's kid, I think. The ministry often gets a lot of bad press. You know, it seems like you can't read the news any week without some minister out there being shown as an example of, of a hypocrite. Yeah. And it is, it is often related to money, uh, whether they're yeah. embezzling funds or using PPP to buy a plane. How do you decide? Oh how do you decide what's appropriate to pay yourself? Yeah, this has everything to do with governance, just like any organization. If you have a great board who understands the vision and they understand the guardrails and their goal is to keep the organization or in our case, the church, not only out of trouble, but positioned to do great things in the community. If you have the right men and women on your board, they're going to keep you from doing all that stupid stuff. And when I hear those <laughs> stories, honestly, I tell our elders all the time, that's our board, you know, cause there'll be some big famous story. Everybody's talking about. I'm like, guys, when I hear stories like that, I always imagine walking into this room with this group saying, Hey, I think I should get a Bentley. Hey, I think we should lease a plane. And they would look at me like, and hey, you're crazy. Okay. So if you have the right people around you, you're just going to make wise decisions. And I've been so fortunate. And, and I think this is part of being a preacher's kid. I saw my dad get surrounded sometimes with not the greatest people. And eventually, you know, that would work its way out. He stayed completely out of trouble. He's been great his whole career. But who you're surrounded with has so much to do with the decisions you make. And we have all kinds of safeguards built in. You know, I want to finish well as a father and as a husband, and I want to finish well as a pastor. There's no amount of stuff that would make up for, you know, not just ruining my reputation, but all the harm that comes when a pastor, you know, ditches it morally or financially or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's so much harm because people have trusted him or her. And their faith oftentimes implodes when the pastor's lifestyle or his habits cause him to implode. So that's, that's a big deal. It has everything to do with accountability and, I think, and who you're surrounded by. Of all the work you do, what are you most proud of? That is a good question. Professionally, you're talking about. Professionally, professionally. professionally. Yeah. I love the fact that we have an organization that raises up leaders. I mean, we have a bunch of churches but our churches are almost like labs for leadership development. And when I left working for my dad 25 years ago, one of the things I had never seen done well that I wanted to figure out was, can you have a church that is built around a leadership culture, not a single personality, not a worship culture, not even just a purely faith culture, but a leadership culture? Because as you know, leaders get things done. I mean, you put the right leader in front of a group of people, they're just going to get it done. That's just the nature of it. And I'm such a fan of leadership and I believe it's a gift. God gives certain people leadership intuition, leadership gifts. So I wanted to create an organization that attracted strong leaders and that we could keep strong leaders, both in terms of volunteer leadership and staff leadership. And I think we've done a great job of creating a leadership culture and when I look around our stewardship team and our elders, when I look around our pastoral staff and then the staff that's coming up, 
I am not the best leader in the organization. I tell people all the time, the reason I'm in charge is I got here first. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm in charge. I got that's here right. first. I'm there not the go. best leader. I'm not the best anything. So I, I love that part of our culture. I'd written this question out before, and I think you saw it, but you know, if you think about religion as a marketplace, and I don't mean this cynically whatsoever, but what need did you fill in the community that wasn't being served? Well, if I can be a little religious here, I mean, you sort of set, teed up the question. Following Jesus has made my life better, and I'm convinced it makes people better at life. Even for a person who isn't convinced that Jesus is divine, following the teaching of Jesus and following Jesus makes a person's life better, and it makes us better at life, makes me a better father and husband and friend and leader. So when we started our church, I just wanted to clear away all the unnecessary clutter, anything that was an unnecessary obstacle to people encountering or being exposed to the teaching of Jesus. So whether it was the building or the music or the length of time or the way we did children, you know, whatever it was, there's this amazing story in Acts chapter 15, the church is arguing over, you know, in those early years, they were trying to decide, do we have to be Jewish to be Christian or can you just be Christian Mm -hmm. and not Jewish Mm -hmm. and follow the law of Moses? Is it Moses first and Jesus? You know, they're trying to figure it out. And they have this big discussion and James, the brother of Jesus, which let's pause and think about that. James, the brother of Jesus. Imagine being the brother of Jesus. Anyway, James, the brother of Jesus becomes, <laughs> it becomes a Jesus. In fact, I think James is our strongest argument for who Jesus is. I mean, I ask people all the time, hey, what would it take for your brother to convince you he's the son of God? And everybody says, huh, nothing. It had never happened. James led the church in Jerusalem and believed his brother was his Lord. So go figure that out. But anyway, so James stands up in this meeting because he's the head of the church in Jerusalem and they're arguing back and forth and he makes this statement. And this statement is written all over the walls of our campuses and our offices. He said, we should not make it difficult. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. And that has been our marching orders from day one. We wanted to create a a church that unchurched people would love to attend. We want to create environments that unchurched people would love to connect to, that people would attend one of our churches and say, you know what? I'm not sure I believe all that, but those are some of the finest, most sincere people I've ever met. And I learned something and I think I'm going to try that. And I think I'd be willing to come back and give that a shot next week. And then secondly, if they have kids, we want our kids to run out to the car and say, mommy and daddy, please bring us back next week. So that's kind of our secret sauce. So we just tried to clear away anything that was an unnecessary obstacle to faith. You know, in the technology business, they call that removing friction from the transaction mm-hmm. or from the interaction. Yep. yep, It is a proven method for both business to allow people to transact and get to the thing they value. It's interesting you say it that way. Well, and it's a moving target because things change so quickly. So we've tried to be nimble and it's been really interesting, obviously, during this current season. So, What are you doing during covid you know, one of the things we did that was a little different is I announced six month intervals. Hey, we're not going to meet for six months. We're not going to meet another six months. So our staff, because we have a large staff in the Atlanta area, our staff could focus on creating more digital content, getting more things in the homes of people. Our East Auditorium, our main worship center, we turned into a television studio because we were creating online content. So because I gave us you know, six months, hey, we're not going to meet shoulder to shoulder in this room because of COVID. Let's do something different. Let's do something original and let's do something that we normally wouldn't be able to do. I, I said, let's not focus on what we can't do. Let's figure out what we can do. So we've learned, like most organizations, we have learned so much. I think we're going to carry a lot of this 
forward with us as we begin to transition back into a normal church, if it's ever normal again. Tell me about the Be Rich program. Years ago, I preached a series called Be Rich. Basically, goes back to what we talked about, Paul, where I basically said, look, we're rich. Let's face it. Let's learn how to be good at it. Let's be good at being rich, not get rich. Let's get good at being rich. And so as part of that, I said, part of being rich is giving. So I challenged everybody in our church and everybody online to give $39.95 and we would give it all away. Why did you come up with that number? Why thirty nine ninety five? Because it's not a, forty it's a television thing. Thirty nine ninety five. You know, every, because one of the things I say is think of all the stupid things you've bought for thirty nine ninety five. You don't even know where they are. You gave them away within days. You got it. You know, you lost it. So, and it was a low threshold. I mean, most people can say, "Okay, I can swipe my card for thirty nine ninety five." Well, we have given uh, I think about fifty six million dollars to local <sighs> charities over the last 10 or 11 years through Be Rich. How many people is that that are contributing to that? Well, it's our Atlanta area churches, and there's about 20 churches around the country that have joined us in this initiative. And then I look right into the camera and I say, look, if you're watching today, wherever you live, I want you to go to our website and I'm promising you, I want everybody to participate and then we're going to give it all away. We don't keep a dollar for staff. 100% of this money goes to local and about 15% to international charities. And when I say charities, these are not necessarily faith-based charities. We go to all of our communities and find the rock star charities that are doing extraordinary things for children and families, the underserved, underprivileged, education, housing, foster care. And we write big checks. This year, this is amazing. I'm glad you asked. So this year, COVID, okay? Our church hasn't met together since about halfway through March. Our Be Rich campaign was in September. So we've not been in the building together since March. It's September. And I looked in the camera week after week. I said, I want this year's Be Rich to be bigger than ever. And our churches gave almost $8 million in two days. Wow. 100% of that money, 100% of that money. In fact, we just gave, we had six categories because we go to these organizations and say, what's your wish list? What's your dream? If you could do anything. And they give us usually three or four things. So the first round, we meet all those needs, second, third, fourth. So we're on our sixth round of giving this money away because so much money came in this year. And I'm telling you that that's one of the most thrilling things in the world. And going back to what we said earlier, this is a stewardship. I have the opportunity because our organization is so big to look into a camera and raise lots of money for other people. And I should do that. And when we first started doing this churches, we were saying, but what if people give to that and don't give to the budget? I'm like, Hey, how big is your God? And so what? And, and every once in a while, I mean, people give like ten, fifteen thousand dollars to be rich. I'm just asking for thirty nine ninety five. But when they hear that these are going to the best charities in the city of Atlanta and our communities all around Atlanta, you know, people love to be generous. And again, thirty nine ninety five is a pretty low threshold. And then we give one hundred percent of it away, and it is so much fun. That's awesome. I think religion would have a much better reputation if people were out there talking about all the good that they're doing and as a channel of service as opposed to a list of beliefs. One of the things that's kind of bugged me through um, COVID is the number of churches that have spent all their time and energy trying to convince the government to let them meet. Mm. It drives me crazy. I'm like, hey, why don't you spend that time and energy doing something for the community? And again, because we have had this downtime in terms of not trying to keep up with here comes Sunday, here comes Sunday, here comes Sunday. 
we've been able to do more in the community this year than ever before. And I just think it's one of the silver linings to this difficult season. Yeah, well, kudos to you and your members, congregants, whatever you call them. Call them our fabulous Your people. fabulous people. <laughs> and to you for being the conduit to help them achieve better things with their money. Okay, you've got two very worthwhile statements in your 25 years of writing. Here's the second one. <laughs> Tell me what this means to you. I cannot promise to fill your cup, but I have a responsibility to empty mine. Uh, I began using this when I would do a lot of do a lot of leadership training, mostly for pastors, but I get invited to do some organizational training for big companies, which is so much fun. I start this way. I say, look, today, I'm not going to tell you everything there is to know about this topic. I'm just going to tell you what I know, because my responsibility is to empty my cup, not fill yours. So here's what I know about that. Here's what I've learned about that. Now you take this and, you know, go somewhere else, read another book, listen to somebody else. My responsibility is to pour myself out. And I don't think for a minute that I'm an expert on anything. And I certainly don't, I don't have the corner on the market on, on any topic, but that gives me the freedom, I think, to go to some places that where I am not an expert and say, okay, here's what I know about that. Here's what I've learned through the years. Do with it as you please. What do you think that means to the average person listening to this podcast? How can they empty their cup and how will they be better off for it? That is a great question. What it does is it keeps me from saying no to opportunities when I don't feel fully capable or like I'm the right person or I don't know what to do or I've never done that before. If you get invited to help somebody, if you get invited to be involved in something, just go and make yourself available and do what you can do. You know, a lot of times you find out you know more than you thought you did once you get there and start answering questions. Or if it's a service project, (laughs) this is terrible. The first exterior I ever painted was a service project for this little girl. She'd had cancer. It's a sad, sad story. And we built her a playhouse in her backyard. And I came the next day with the team to paint it. And I'm telling you, okay, I've never painted anything. I painted a door one time and it was upside down accidentally and it dripped. And when we put it on, it had the drips running. Out the door. Okay, So I'm like <laughs> the worst handyman in the history. And so when I showed up and we we're going to paint this sweet little girl's outdoor house, I thought, I'm going to screw this up. But I thought, okay, come on, just you know, make a fool of yourself, go over there and help them paint. So a lot of time our availability is uh, just, you know, speaks volumes. So yeah, just go empty your cup. But this presents us with a problem, Andy. If you empty your cup, it keeps getting refilled and then you just have to keep emptying it again. You are exactly right. You can't put another thing in a full cup. So empty it. That's why I say we ought to live with our open hands. You can put more in open hands than closed hands. So don't close your hands around your stuff give it away, make it available. I'm Sandra and I are foster parents. I'm telling you, that's another whole story, becoming foster parents and having kids show up at the front door with a plastic bag full of clothes. And, you know, it scared us to death. Deciding to become a foster parent. And then after the training, they try to scare you out. Not really. But it's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a big I bet scary, they do. They should. But, but you know what? You know, people talk about, especially in Christianity, oh, that's not deep. Let me tell you what deep is. Deep is when you can't touch the bottom. That's what deep is. And when you put yourself out there to serve other people and you do not feel capable or fully prepared, you are in the deep end. That's where God works. That's where amazing things happen. That's where we pull to the end of our personal adequacy. That's when we pray like crazy. And that's where, that's where things change. So, you know, say yes, even if you're not prepared. Andy Stanley, this has been a whole lot of fun and inspiring and thought provoking. If our audience wants to find out more, where can they find out more about you? Northpoint.org is our web address. Everything's there. 
If you Google my name, I've got tons of leadership, free leadership material on a completely different website. One of the coolest things we do, we have a program after a Saturday Night Live in about 35 markets around Atlanta. We're on in Atlanta right after Saturday Night Live. It's just an abbreviated part of a message. And we have such great retention. You know, it's wonderful. So if you're up late and you don't want to go to church, just after Saturday Night Live, I'll talk you to sleep. You can find that on YouTube as well, right? Yeah, yeah, all my stuff's on YouTube for free, yeah. And it's real, legit issues that are applicable to everybody, Christian or not Christian, your move with Andy Stanley. Andy, thanks again. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Paul. Loved it. I'm very grateful to Andy Stanley. That was very generous of him to spend an hour talking about his work with us. And I tell you, it is no surprise to me that that guy's churches are full every Sunday because he's talking about things that truly matter, a practical application of the scripture to everyday life. And I heartily endorse taking a few minutes to go and look at his work on YouTube. We'll even put a link in the show notes to uh, his program, Your Move. He's not terribly preachy. Even if you don't believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, it is practical human wisdom that we can use to guide our lives by. And Your Move is a great example of how he does that. Anyway, Your Move with Andy Stanley. Let's get to the takeaways, shall we? All right. First and foremost, give first. I got to tell you, folks, this one kind of scares me. And it scares me because I have a sneaking suspicion that he is right about all this, that actually giving first, having the courage to give first is actually something that makes you stronger and more generous. And that's not the approach we've been taking. We have been giving, we've been giving a lot. Are we giving as much as a percentage as we should be? Maybe, probably, some. Uh, We could do better. We should be progressive. We should push ourselves. But I do like his ideas because that idea that giving actually makes you stronger and more generous is probably true. I also agree with him that we have never missed money we've given away. There are certain things we would do differently. There are strategies we would implement in our giving. Maybe we would combine some of the gifts, maybe not have given to certain organizations as opposed to others, but we've never missed that money. And at the end, like Peter Singer talked to us about, you're doing yourself a favor when you give. So think about that. Think about how much you're giving. Think about where you're giving it and if you could be giving more. Two, I really liked, really liked my question. I'm going to pat myself on the back here. I really liked my question, but distinguishing between the love of money being the root of all evil and the common interpretation of that, which is money is the root of all evil. And the reason I think it's important is because There's a lot of people out there in the world today who want you to believe that money is dirty, that it is evil, and that having a lot of money is a terrible thing. And the reason they want to do that is because they use guilt and shame to control you, like some religions do. By making you feel bad about how much money you have, and by the way, this works for people who lecture you about privilege based on your gender, your race, or your sexual orientation. Also, they want to shame you into thinking that the way you've lived your life is bad and somehow evil so that you will then conform to their political or religious philosophies, right? And I don't buy that. I don't buy that a bit. And I don't believe that's Christian to think that or to throw that guilt on somebody else. But that doesn't mean, even if you make that distinction, that there's not a lot there to think about in the sense that money can lead us in the wrong direction, that it can take our eye off the ball. Yes, Andy talked about how some people who make a little bit of money lose their religion. I don't think those two things are related for me. I honestly don't. I believe that it was other externalities that were happening that made me step back and think, what do I truly believe? Because 
the church I was attending was clearly not living the faith that they preached. Enough about that. Think about in your life, is the love of money driving you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do? Lastly, number three, empty your cup. Wow, man, this is some powerful stuff. I can't promise to fill your cup, but I'm obliged to empty mine. Is it obliged or obligated? Either way, I have to empty mine. That's what it means to live. That's our purpose. You are a vessel through which love and charity and forgiveness and other things, laughter, wisdom, joy, acknowledgement, all these good things flow. And when you empty your cup, you're living your purpose, whether or not that's how you think about purpose, right? You're honoring your life by having the life force flow through you. Empty your cup. How can you be emptying your cup more and more each day? Really appreciate Andy Stanley joining us for this conversation. Please stick around to hear his very funny son talk about being the son and grandson of pastors. And in the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart. I, uh, I come from a preacher family. Um, my, you know, my grandfather's a big Southern Baptist preacher. My dad's a pastor. And I do this. So <laughs> they're just giddy about it. I, I think this is just a more fun version of what they do. You know, I don't have to baptize anybody. Uh, That's gross. Uh, I'm not trying to get in a hot tub with some sinner. Uh, I don't know where they've been, you know? If they're washing it off, I don't want it floating over to me. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to catch the reason they're here. I... Especially now, I don't think they're gonna be able to baptize people again safely for some time. Uh, I think all the churches are gonna have to buy those carnival dunk tanks. And the pastor can just throw a softball from six feet away to see who gets into heaven. I think that's a better system. I think think that'll survive this. That'll be the new way. Just be like, sorry, you are out. Come back next week with more tokens and we'll see if we can get you up there. I don't know. We do tokens now. It's the new system. There's a machine in the back you can go to. I do think stand-up is better than preaching, though. As a comedian, you can talk about whatever you want. Uh, My dad, every Sunday, has to just do a new book report uh, about the same book every week for the rest of his life. Just see what else is in here. Uh, and people send them, people get frustrated with that. They'll send them emails. They'll be like, this Easter service sounds a lot like the one from a few years ago. He'll just be like, yeah, so sorry about that. The uh, material has not changed. Uh, you can't just add stuff in, you know. The author's always listening. And... He has a pretty violent history, so we gotta be careful with trying to plagiarize a guy that turns people into salt sometimes. There is one thing about my dad's job that I'm jealous of, uh, other than the money. Uh, and it's, it's what happens when like strangers find out what one of us does. Like if a stranger finds out my, that I'm a comedian, they'll be like, oh, tell us a joke, and that gets old. Uh, but when strangers find out my dad is a preacher, they will just like slide into the booth with him and start telling him about their divorce. 
And that seems way better, you know? Uh, tell me about your divorce. I can use it. He won't even talk about it. I will talk about it. I will I'll work with you. We'll make it funnier. It'll be a fun little project during your tough time. I can't wait to get to know you. <laughs>